let's pick up where we left off. We were in First uh, Timothy, and we're finishing up chapter 6. At this time, uh, Paul is in Colossae, Timothy's in Ephesus. I say this every week. Uh, problems going on, and you have to understand what the problems are facing him in chapter 6. This is 63 AD, and some historians have estimated that over half of the population were slaves. In the Roman Empire and, a, and a, the geogra- geography around it, uh, slavery was, and, and today, like, America has like has a different connotation, different idea of what slavery is. But back in those days, slaves were highly educated. They helped teach the the, the kids in the home. They it was it was like having a job. It was more like the employee and the employer, but it was referred to as slaves. And obviously, our traditions here in the United States have greatly impacted the thought pattern of what it says here in the scripture. But if you go back, the gospel message of salvation and freedom in Christ, it appealed to the slaves. Like, yeah, obviously they're employers and they were limited in what they could do, but this freedom in Christ that Paul was teaching, that Timothy was teaching, all of a sudden we have freedom... We have freedom, and they begin to almost like unionize, the slaves did, and they begin to rebel and do their own thing against their masters, their masters, their employers. And they use that newfound freedom in Christ as an excuse to basically disobey, if not even to defy their own masters. So now it's become a problem, and Timothy's in the church going, we're teaching them their freedom in Christ, and they're just taking it and abusing it behaviorally. They needed to learn that the spiritual freedom in Christ, it didn't alter their social position, even though they were accepted graciously into the fellowship of the church. And so now we pick up in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, All who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as as worthy of all respect, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Paul's really encouraging the Christian slaves to be role models, really, for the unbelieving masters. Like, if you know something about Jesus and this freedom in Christ, and your employer, your master doesn't know, what kind of example are you setting for them as a believer in Jesus? You can take that same message and apply it to today. As believers in Jesus Christ, how you choose to behave, which we all know it's not about behavior, it's about whether you are walking by the Spirit or walking by your flesh and how it plays out, you have the same impact on your employers today, the ones that are over you. And remember this, I, I, I treasure this out of Romans, God leads us to repentance through his kindness. He leads us to repentance through his kindness. 
the good news is the good news. And being kind, even in a difficult situation, even a master-slave relationship, it's important for the slave to be kind. And then, watch this, verse 2, says, let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Now he's saying, if the master's the believer... In turn, you have to treat your employees, your slaves, just as well as they treat you, or even better. Even better. Sometimes we believe, because we're working for a Christian boss, that we don't have to work as hard. We have the same rights as they do sometimes, that we are privileged because hey we're both believers we're equals here and so but you forget there's a relationship of boss and employee right we there's no doubt there's no doubt that paul has taught organization throughout these letters that we've gone through and we should have the same desire the same desire to serve believing masters even more than those who are non-believers. It's all about respect. It's all about honoring each other, both the employer and the employee. And then one of the other issues that he was having to deal with, when he, he gets to this chapter, this last chapter, he's, he's basically dealing with four different relationships. He moves on to this next one. And he's talking about the false teachers, which he's already done in several of the chapters before. He says, teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, now hang on a second, I won't finish that verse. He's literally saying right here, they must teach the Bible. They must teach the Bible. This, look, we can come up here and we can teach opinions, we can teach agendas, we can teach a lot of things, but literally, Paul's saying, hey, teach what you know, teach the truth. The prophet Isaiah said this in chapter 8, verse 20, he says, go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. He's literally saying, hey, you have to pursue the things of God. You have to pursue the things of God because everything else is just opinion. He says, those false teachers, those that are teaching false doctrine, they're, they're totally, totally in the dark. That everything that comes from this stage right here, comes from this, these speakers, needs to be filtered through the 66 books of the scripture. That's it. Don't, and I'll say this, don't believe a word that I'm saying. Some of you are like taking notes and everything else. Good, take notes, but don't believe a word that I'm saying because really what you need to do is you need to take the word, you need to open it up, you need to read it, you need to understand it because there's a spirit inside of you that will allow you to do that and see if I'm telling you the truth. If I'm not telling you the truth, you probably need to go find somebody that is telling you the truth. So filter my notes, filter my interpretation, 
and even my opinions and see if I'm telling you the truth. It's on you, not on me. He says, he says, let me back up. He says, if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. He's literally saying, there's an attitude that's conveyed here from this stage, from the teachers, from those that are public speakers, an attitude. And you know what I'm talking about. It's obvious when you see a Bible teacher, and I'll just say it, that they're arrogant that either they believe they know everything right here or they've got it all together. You can see that. He's literally talking about here an attitude, the proud versus the humble. The brain, the intellect versus the heart. Are you going to be argumentative versus listening and instructing? When he says, like, conceited, he, I mean, that, that's a pretty strong word to say. It's, a, it's an attitude. And that whole attitude, it can destroy a sense of community. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer in, obviously, relationships here. That's, that's the, what I do up here, this, this is just a small part of what, what I do on a weekly basis. I try to make myself accessible to you, to the community. I try to build relationships. And, and I believe that's truly what it's about. It's not about me being on the stage, me being the, the head of Levener. It's, it's really just about leading a community, shepherding a community. He says, from these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. The heretics there, they viewed religion as a a means of making a, a quick dollar. They could literally get up there and, and speak, speak very clearly and speak very eloquently, but not of the things of God, and people would pay them for their performance. But Paul's, Paul's strong words describe false teachers who exploited the church, those that were just there to, to make money for their, for their own ends without caring about what was going on in the community. I ask this question, do you think Satan uses that same tactic today? There's no doubt about it. You can see it and it's evident. And you were talking about how uh, the men coming and serving, that's one of the reasons men don't come to church. Because they can see it. And the church is always asking for like the next dollar, the next dollar. He says in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. (laughs) Godliness with contentment is 
great gain. We have a lot of financial guys in our ministry here. I'm talking about they work in the financial world. But honestly, I can point you to any one of those guys or women, and they have much more to offer than growing your account. Like, their impact in this community is huge. Yeah, they're out there to help you financially and, and to grow the dog, but that's not the main concern. There, there's a spirit about them. Uh, he, he, even my son's in the financial world, and I know his heart. He cares about people, and he talks to people all day long. It's about that. Yeah, he's pressing buttons and helping them with their finances, but it really comes down to the heart. And, and here, here's the thing. Not just those financial people, but those that um, have wisdom, those that care about others. Let me tell you something. Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 1.18, it says, For with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. When people seek you out for wisdom, they're usually troubled. There's usually a question. And so those that got, get sought out for, for wisdom or knowledge, sometimes they end up taking on the burden of other people. It brings them uh, grief. It, it brings them sorrow. It's tough. But he's literally saying, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. I was just having a conversation before the service with Kyle and Maddie about retirement. Look, you can build the retirement, but when we're gone, you're not going to care about your retirement. I, I get it, it's an earthly thing and we have to do it. We have to plan and prepare and everything else. But once you're gone, for we brought nothing to the world and we can take nothing out. Job, David, Solomon, they all said that. You go back in the scripture. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. And we've talked about this just recently. What is your, what is your level of contentment? What do you want for Christmas? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Too, too many of us know the price of everything and the value of nothing. The price of everything and the value of nothing. We're, we're so into luxury. You, you realize that we live now in a throwaway society. Right? If it's just broke, go get a new one. Just throw it away. Like, these these technology dumps that the city of Fishers has, like every three months, six months, or whatever, people throwing away TVs and appliances and things like that. It, it's like we used to fix everything. Car breaks, get a new car. Right? It's the, it's the way it works. He's saying if we have food and clothing, 
we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let me, let me clarify that. Money is not evil. Money is not evil. It's, it's neutral. It's the love of money that's evil. It's the love of money. When, you, when it's all about pursuing the money, the almighty dollar, rather than your faith, that's when things get messy. It's a dangerous thing to use religion, especially as a cover-up for acquiring wealth. It's what he's saying. He's, these false teachers are coming in and they're using this as a profitable thing for them. You know that the Pharisees, they were all about obtaining wealth, that the more that they could obtain, the more they thought their stature was. And I'll say this because he said it last week in chapter 5, that the God's laborer, those that are teachers, those that are pastors, those that are shepherds, are certainly worth their hire. But the motive there is not for money. My, my, look, you guys take care of me. The Lord takes care of me. I get it. It comes through you from him. And I'm thankful. I'm very thankful to be able to do this. But that's not my motive at all. I'm not here for the paycheck. This is the calling that I have on my life. The Lord takes care of me, provides for me, uh, and if I'm doing it for the, the dollar, you're in trouble. Hey, you have to think, where does the craving come from? If it's about the love of money, where does it come from? Well, it has to come from the evil one. The greed, the desire, all that. And literally Paul's saying, be content, be content. So now he's talked, to, uh, he's talked to the false teachers. He's talked to the slaves and masters. But now he talks to Timothy. Verse 11, he says, But you, but you, he's writing this letter to Timothy. This is like an utter contrast from the false teachers that he's just referring to. Man of God, but you, man of God, know your identity. Let me remind you of your identity, Timothy. Man of God, flee from these things. The word flee that Paul uses right here, he's not talking about a literal running there, but to Timothy separating himself from the sins of the false teachers. Don't do what they're doing, Timothy. Don't. It looks tempting. They make a lot of money doing it. It's not worth it. He says, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Separation without positive, without positive, growth, he's, without positive growth, he's literally saying, you're going to separate yourselves from everybody else 
And you have to do it in a positive way. If you don't, it's going to cause you to be isolated. If you do it in a negative way, you will be set apart, but you will be by yourself. That the character and the conduct that you're talking about right here, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness, it's through God's kindness that he leads people to repentance. To be gentle in your conversations. To be faithful. To have endurance. It's tough. It's tough. And he says this. Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. I mean, that, that is present tense. Fight the good fight of the faith. It's a continuous struggle. Who's this fight with? Who's the fight with? It's with the evil one. And the evil one will, <clears throat> he'll use your church against you. He will use your family against you. He will use your friends against you. He will use other believers against you. He wants to win. He wants to win. And Paul's saying to Timothy, dude, it's a good fight. It's a good fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. It's absolutely worth it. I know who you're struggling against, but it's absolutely worth it. You ask that question every time you get in an argument with someone. Who's this struggle really with? Who's it with? He says, take hold of eternal life to which you are called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. If you go back to like chapter one, he's literally saying to Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but one of power, love, and self-discipline. He's literally saying, Paul, I know you're, you're a timid guy. You're timid, you're soft, you're young, but fight this. Fight through this timidity. Be strong. Verse 13, it says, in the presence of God who gives life to all, and of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's like a military, a commander in the, the army right there, just giving orders to Timothy. I command you to do this. Be strong. He's like, God will bring this about in his own time. He's the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, who alone is mortal, he's not subject to death, and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and power. Amen. He's literally saying, Paul, Paul, get this. Focus on this. Now watch this. Let me show you something. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, Moses in Exodus, chapter 33, verse 18 says this. Then Moses said, please, let me see your glory. He's speaking to God. Let me see, your, let me see you, God. 
And he said, God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim the name the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face. Moses, you cannot see my face. For humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You're to stand on that rock. And when my glory passes by, I'll put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face you will not be seen. This is in the Old Covenant. This is Moses. This is the Old Testament. The glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord that led them out of, out of Egypt. The glory of the Lord that came in Luke chapter 2 through Jesus Christ the Son. Guess where that glory of the Lord is right now? <laughs> like Moses wanted to see his face. I turn to Colossians chapter 1 in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. It says this, God wanted to make known among the, among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. That same glory that Moses wanted to see, that God hid from him in the crevice, I'm looking at it right now. The hope of glory is in you. That glory of God that Moses so desired to see is sitting right here in front of you and sitting in front of me in each one of us. I got one amen out of that. Really, church? The glory of God resides in our mortal bodies. That's crazy. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Yeah. I'll take that. And then he closes with this. <laughs> the fourth group that he talks to, he talks to the rich. It's like the, the last thing that he says. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. I have wealthy friends. I have friends that have a lot of money. And I can see the goodness of God in them. I can see how they handle situations, how they encourage others, how they minister to others. It's okay to be wealthy. It's okay. But it all, again, it comes down to the attitude and the focus and chasing the faith. That's what it's about. Chasing faith. And get this, he closes, he closes his letter to Timothy with this. Timothy, Guard what has been entrusted to you. He's talking about the word of God. He's talking about Jesus. 
Guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. You, you don't have to be an intellectual to get this. It really is simple. It was meant to be simple. We go down this road of, you know, picking at every word and trying to prove everything and trying to figure out God. And I, I love the intent and the passion for that. But literally, Paul's saying, Timothy, this is really simple. Just teach it simple. Jesus, Jesus came. He was the Son of God. He died for our sins. His blood was poured out. He was buried. He rose again just so that we could have life. This, this is a great week for us to be reminded of our conversations and who we put our trust in. It's a great week. Because people are going to be obviously talking about uh, the Passover. They're going to be talking about the Last Supper. They're going to be talking about Good Friday, Jesus dying on the cross. They're going to be talking about Easter bunnies. And then next Sunday we come and we talk about how Jesus rose from the dead. He says, grace be with you all. Grace be with you. Grace, we define grace as salvation. Plus we also define it the ability to do things through God's strength. We define it as something. If I'm to define it as something, let me define it as Jesus Christ. That's grace. He says, grace be with you all. Jesus, be with you all. It is with us. Receive it and share it. And today as we, um, we come, it's Palm Sunday. Can't think of a, a better way that when he says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted you, professing it, as some people have departed from the faith, profess it. On that week where Jesus was to be crucified, he uh, met with his disciples in the upper room. It's Passover. It's Passover. And they literally had a full meal right there on the Thursday before he was to be crucified on Friday. And he literally takes the bread, takes the bread that's on the table, and he breaks it. And he says to, I'm assuming the 11 that are there, Judas has already left. Is that right? Has he left at that point? says to the eleven that are there, this, this is my body. This bread, this bread is my body which is broken for you. In other words, I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to raise again. I'm going to go sit at the right hand of the Father and then I'm going to send a spirit to come live inside of you and you're going to have life eternal. So my body is going to be broken so you can live. So that you can have life. These 11 guys looked at him and like, huh? 
Huh? Really? They didn't have a clue what was about to happen. They just knew that their Messiah, that they had put their faith in, was going to die. What about us? What about us? You're leaving us. Ah, it's all good. It's all good. And he passed the bread out to him and he said, I want you to take and remember that I have given you life. And they partook in the bread. And then he took the wine that they were drinking, the, the cup of wine, and he says, I want you to know this is my blood. And again, they're freaking out like, what? This is my blood which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. This represents the blood that when I'm on the cross and my blood is shed and the reason blood is important is because it represents life. Without blood we have no life. He says my blood will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's his blood that was perfect. It's his blood that not only covers and atones sin, but it totally forgives sins and takes sins away forever. It's his blood that one time when he died on the cross, forgiveness came for those that have already sinned, for those that were sinning, and for those that were going to sin. The past, the present, and the future, he died one time for all sin. That's it. Everything that you've done, everything that you're doing, everything that you're going to do has already been dealt with. And that's why when we talk about sin here, it's in the past. Yeah, I still sin. Yeah, I still make bad choices. I still walk by the flesh sometimes. But the truth is, he's already dealt with that, so now I have to focus on him and walking by the Spirit. You'll hear many times in the church, oh, focus on not sinning, not sinning, not sinning. Well, good luck with that. Tried it and done it and it doesn't work. The only thing that works is trusting Jesus as our Lord and Savior and for him to live his life through us. Worship, to breathe, to breathe Jesus. And so today, uh, we're going to remember what Jesus did with his disciples I'm going to say a word of prayer and then I'm going to allow you to come up here and to uh, grab a cracker and a, a cup of juice and you can go back to your seat and then we will take that together. So I'll let you come up here as soon as I pray. Father, thank you for uh, today and thank you that we can be here as a family and as believers and we can celebrate not mourn for what is about to happen, but to celebrate what has already happened. That you gave your life for us. And we can rejoice in that. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may come up here. So he, he took the bread first. He took the bread first. He said, this is my body which is broken for you, so that you may have life. Ryan, I'm going to ask you to pray for the bread as we partake in the bread. Kind of an odd request. Uh, Lord Jesus, we just thank you for life. We thank you that uh, there's much more than forgiveness, Lord, but uh, you are the very bread of life. You are the life that uh, you have given to us. 
And, uh, Lord, you are uh, completely bring glory to yourself as you live life in us and through us for the benefit of others. And uh, we accept this, and we thank you in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And then he took the cup. He says, this is my blood which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank you that you have provided a way. And your blood is perfect, not like the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Covenant. But that through your blood, which is a physical representation of just a spiritual reality, that our sins are gone as far as the east is from the west. Thank you for our forgiveness. Help us to abide in that, to keep our minds focused on that, so that we do not have to condemn ourselves or take condemnation for anything because you've taken it all upon yourself. So we receive this in Jesus Christ. Amen. They say it's Holy Week. It's Holy Week every week. (laughs) You've been made holy from the moment that you believed. And you walk this earth with the same glory, with the same glory in you, Every day, every week, not just this week, not just this week, but celebrate with them. Celebrate with them. Talk about it. Talk about what you have, that the glory of God is in you and maybe even in them. Share the good news. It was meant to be simple. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.